This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked product designer Earl Carlson what's his biggest challenge with designing for Facebook. The biggest challenge is uh, designing for a global audience. We're at 2 billion right now while still maintaining to be very focused on the problem that we're trying to solve. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Cloud4 is looking for a front-end developer in Portland, Oregon. And Chegg Incorporated is looking for a UX designer for a contract role in New York City. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to remind you again that we're sponsoring the 2017 Black in Design Conference. This event takes place October 6th through the 8th at the Harvard University Graduate School of Design, and they just announced recently that DeRay McKesson will be giving the closing keynote on Saturday. General admission tickets are still on sale. I'll put a link down in the show notes so you can get yours today. Also, in case you missed our announcement that we did uh, last week, we're donating 100% of our store sales this month to go towards Hurricane Harvey relief efforts. These proceeds are going to the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund that's put on at the Greater Houston Community Foundation. Threadless, who hosts our store, they're also chipping in and they're offering free shipping for the month for any orders that are over $45. And, of course, going on right now is our Labor Day sale. You can get 20% off on all men's, women's, and kids' apparel, and that ends today, actually. So get your shop on, help out a great cause so we can get the people that are affected by Harvey back on their feet. I'll put a link down in the show notes to the announcement, as well as to our store on Threadless. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. You know, I think anyone who has a small business knows that sometimes advertising your business can feel like you're throwing your money into a black hole. The good thing about MailChimp is that they give you the power to see exactly what's working, and they also give you the confidence to grow your business in your own way. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. You know, I bought my first domain, uh, my name, MauriceCherry.com. I bought that on June 19th, 2003. And throughout my career online, after graduating college, going to jobs, starting my studio, it's really been the one constant that I've had as I've grown as a designer and a professional. And that's really the kind of flexibility that Hover offers you, along with a bunch of other perks like personalized email, free who is privacy, etc. They also have a sale that's going on right now where you can get 50% off 
any dot photo domain. So I know we have some photographers out there that are also designers. It's a great way to get your name out there with a kind of unique and catchy domain. So go to hover.com forward slash revision path and you can get 10% off on your first purchase. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional business or enterprise projects. They let you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple options that your websites can grow into. All plans have managed WordPress hosting. They include staging and Git integration. Get started today by visiting SiteGround.com forward slash revision paths. You can get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. Now for this week's interview. We're kicking off HBCU month on Revision Path and talking with digital designer and art director Angelica McKinley. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Angelica McKinley and I'm a digital designer and art director. Currently, I work at Slack, which is one of our great up-and-coming technological companies here in the East Bay. We've had a few people, quite a few people here that either are currently at Slack or, or I guess now they're no longer at Slack. Uh, Kaya Thomas, I think, just started there kind of doing some intern things. Christy Tillman, of course, is there. Yes. Erica Baker, I think. Yes, she... Christy is actually my boss. Oh, Christy's your boss. Okay. All right. Cool. Erica Baker, I know she just left for Kickstarter. Diogenes Brito is there. I want to say there's like one or two other people. Does Mina Markham work for yeah. Slack? Is she there? Yes. Mina and I work actually closely together. She's who I'm working on this project on. This is a big digital project. Man, Slack is racking up on Black Designers. That is awesome. Yeah, it's pretty great. What's a typical day like for you there? I would say a typical day starts with uh, me trying to wave a hand at the barista um, <laughs> because I'm really soaking up these new benefits that I've never experienced before. But that would probably be my first stop. But usually I come in and What's interesting about working at Slack is that you really don't receive emails. So the first thing I usually do is log into Slack and look to see if I have any messages. And I try to like start off a little bit of the day by having like some time to read some of my mantras or affirmations just to try to get the day rolling. And actually, my coworker and I, we both kind of like to do that in the morning, which is a nice start. And then I just try to get into designing and maybe brainstorming, getting some inspiration throughout the day, looking at some of my like favorite sites or design blogs and maybe listening to a podcast while I'm designing and just getting some work done. Maybe have a couple of meetings, maybe only a few if I'm lucky. And uh, yeah, just being creative. Now you're new to working in text. I know you have a long history based on, you know, kind of the research I've done. You have a long history working in print. What made you decide to kind of take the switch over to technology? So about two or three years ago, while I was working in traditional media, at the time I was at the New York Times, I really started to really get an interest in the digital side of editorial. When I first got to the New York Times, like the digital side of the newspaper played a very small role. I had heard stories like years before about how the whole digital team was in a whole separate building from the main newsroom. So obviously, as you can tell, like digital was always kind of seen as a separate entity. But about three years ago, I really started to feel a pulse of change happening. And it was exciting, like from my vantage point, even though it was also very hard. And I saw a lot of opportunities to really just delve in 
and kind of try out some new things on the digital side of editorial design. And so I really tried to like stay late and like learn as much as I could about what some of the digital like pioneers around me were doing and just like trying to soak up like whatever knowledge I could. And I eventually decided to transition to digital editorial design at the New York Times. And while I was there, I just felt like every single day I was learning something new. Being a digital designer at the Times, you're usually doing a mix of like design, like visual design, UX design, and front-end web development. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like my mind was expanding in so many ways. Like I was excited about VR and artificial intelligence and just all of these new technologies and how they would have an impact on how we communicate. And it just really made me like see tech as like a really interesting creative space. And I was like, you know what? I think I need to go to the source. (laughs) (laughs) When you kind of look back at that time when you were working, you know, in media, of course, you work for the Times. You also work for USA Today. What have you learned from that that you're able to use today? I would say that what media really helps you to understand is the story behind something, especially if you work in communications, marketing, branding, design. I think working in media, you really read the work that you do or the work that's created. You understand what makes a good story and like what readers want to see what catches their eye. And I think it really helps to inform a lot of my decisions now working in tech and at Slack. I really try to think a lot about what story are we trying to tell about the brand? Because at the end of the day, people really love a good story. They can identify with that. I think when it's just blatant advertisement, they can see it a mile away. Yeah. Now, with the work that you were doing at the Times, you said that you were um, you were working in the newsroom as well. Is that right? Uh, yes, correct. And you worked during <laughs> a very tumultuous time, which was our recent presidential election. What was that time like? What kind of stuff were you doing? The environment at the New York Times was really amazing during the election. I've already felt that the people who work in media are some of the hardest working people ever. I mean, their commitment to the stories and to this like higher calling is just like really phenomenal to watch. But during this election in particular, it was just immensely driven and ambitious and and I guess mission driven. I think their connection to the truth and, and what they stand for really came out during this presidential election. And so I would say like working in the building and working on stories, like I think everything took a heightened sense and everyone had this singular focus. It was like everyone's thought and eyes and ideas were pointed towards this direction of what can we do to really explain and show what was going on. And I would also say it was a hard time. I think after the election, it was a hard time to take a look, too, at what the New York Times and other media organizations were covering and how they had covered stories and how they could have done a better job in terms of, like, you know, getting the pulse of the country and being in some of these, like, locations that they hadn't really been in for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, of course, part of that had been also the decline of, like, newspaper revenue and the disruption of technology. But, you know, I think it was like a a recentering of like their focus and their mission. And it was just really phenomenal to watch, but also scary. Like before, you know, seeing the ticker on the homepage of like where the election was going, um, I was definitely stressed out just watching that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
I remember that little jiggling meter and how people on Twitter were like, this is giving me anxiety. Why is this jiggling? It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, I was definitely experiencing a lot of anxiety looking at that as well. And I just know how much like work went in from our graphics department to build that type of device and to also just have it there on the homepage so that at any moment people could be able to refresh and see the results. I'm always just like impressed by, to me, the amount of polish and quality and work that goes into these type of projects at newspapers because people are usually creating these things within days. Now, of course, there's this really heightened, I think, awareness and criticism of media now, which has come, I think, as a byproduct of the really the campaign season, the 2016 campaign season, but the election as well. I mean, when you even have the president like decrying media, things are fake news, things are alternative facts. You know, there's he's going after individual institutions. You know, of course, he's always been railing against the New York Times. And now you're working in technology. And I don't mean this to be like a flipping question, but do you feel like this was an interesting time to exit out of media? So one of the things that I've thought about a lot with this was that I think when you're working in media for a long time, you start to get like a certain understanding of like the way things have always been. Media, like you said, is an institution. And I mean, these places have been around for at least like 100 years. And so there's sort of kind of this thought of the way that you should always do something, right? Like, When I came to design for print at the New York Times, there was never a question of how we were going to really do it. I mean, they've perfected the process. (laughs) There was no need to question it. But I think once I started working on the digital and technology side, I realized there was a lot I didn't understand about technology. So how could I help improve media and make it a better place Mm -hmm. when I didn't necessarily understand the underlying behind the scenes of how these innovative technologies work. Yeah. And definitely one of the first things that I did when I got to Slack was I talked to Christy and told her about my idea. And I also, um, and she suggested that I talk to Stuart about it. And I was able to talk to Stuart Butterfield and mention that journalists increasingly use Slack. And one of my, my first experiences with Slack was in my journalism job. And while working at Slack, what I noticed was media professionals and media designers and reporters and editors could probably get even more from Slack than what they're currently getting. And so I think it makes me think a lot of how can I think of ways that technology can solve some of these problems that I just saw with my own eyes inside the industry. Yeah, Slack is one of those tools that's being used in so many innovative ways. I mean, I know it's it started out as something that's used by businesses, you know, kind of for inter-office or intra-office communication. But now there are so many, I think, social groups that use Slack as sort of a kind of de facto ad hoc community of sorts. I mean, Revision Path has a Slack community. So it's interesting how this sort of product is able to grow within, you know, just different people's usage, you know, and I feel like with media, like you said, it's something that is a traditional, they've perfected the process. And tech is something which is still kind of changing and shifting and growing, it seems like, every day. 
Yeah, and I actually um, have a Slack group that's separate that's actually with a lot of my journalism friends who have either left journalism or are currently still working in it. And kind of what we talk about is different ways that we can like aid journalism from our like different perspectives. One of my friends is a designer at IDEO and we've talked about like writing either medium articles to talk about how technology or organizational design could help these journalistic entities like move forward. And I'm very encouraged by that. I think having more journalists go out and have different experiences and bring them back to journalism, you know, not just leave it and like, oh, I'm never going back. But like, you know, actually bring that different knowledge to it, I think is what helps journalism. Because when you think about it, yes, you can go and study journalism in a school, but really some of the best journalists of our era, like if you think of David Carr or even Tanasi Colts, are people who have had various experiences and have infinite knowledge into this particular subject matter. I mean, that intersection of tech and journalism, I feel like is something which really started getting popularized when, you know, content management systems or, or these blog systems started becoming more commonplace. I mean, I remember getting started with movable type in like the early 2000s. And it was at oh, that wow. time when like everyone, <laughs> like everyone had a site, everyone had a blog or something. But then, you know, there are people that have been doing that, that now are sort of part of the the media, I'm using air quotes here, but like they're part of the media in that they've taken what used to be just this simple kind of blog or thing that they've done. And now they've established themselves as an authority because they're continuing to do it through, you know, technology. Exactly. And so how can we empower a lot more of these institutions to do that? And of course, like they're thinking about it from the larger areas, like partnerships with Facebooks or Googles. Yeah. But I also think about how can either we as like people of color create like more things that can aid journalism. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, especially from working in media, I know that all media institutions or at least most of them try to do their best of being like unbiased or impartial. Like those are words that are continuously used. But I do think a lot about how like we as like black creatives can think of like technology that could assist with that. Yeah that can start taking it away from like, you know, necessarily just pure human interaction. I mean, I've been doing revision path now for a little over four years. It'll be five years in February next year. And I was talking about it with someone recently and they referred to me as a journalist and I had to step back like, Whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. <laughs> I, I'm not a journalist. Like my degree is in math. I'm very much like not didn't go to J school or anything like that, but yeah, it's interesting how the technology has now enabled us to create these platforms where we can get our own messages out. We can tell the story where we can, you know, kind of establish who we are in a way. Yeah. And I would say that journalism is a flexible term. I think we do think of it as going to a journalism school and getting this degree. But I would say journalism is is storytelling. It's like those in certain ways, like us having this conversation and it being documented and recorded and and being able to even go back to it to say that this was a slice in time, you know, where these things were happening is is kind of like some of the ground roots of, of journalism and, you know, asking people questions and being curious about the answers. 
Yeah, that's. Um, I know that's what attracted me to it was just that innate curiosity. Yeah, that's true. I, I can I can kind of see it like that, especially now. Podcasting is becoming. It's really getting this big second wave now. I, I came in kind of at the first wave. I had like little shows here and there in the mid two thousands, but they weren't they weren't anything big at all. It was just me kind of talking on a computer. And then you know when Serial came along around like 2012, 2013, now podcasting is is this big huge thing. There's podcasting conferences. There's millions of dollars around sponsorship. Of course, public radio and other media organizations are kind of throwing their hats in the ring with this. It's really interesting to see how the technology is changing the narrative. It's And it's giving other people more voices that we wouldn't regularly hear. You know, I know with podcasting, it it feels like it's one of those things that is largely the realm of public media because they have the institutions to record, to market, to, you know, kind of build these things out. But there's such a huge indie podcasting scene. I mean, anything that you can think of that anything you can think of, there's pretty much a podcast for it. Yeah, there's pretty much a podcast for anything, just like you said. And and it's actually it's like really, really interesting and fascinating. And I just love that so many stories are being told now. And I know that that does seem like odd, you know, coming from a person who's worked at the more of the institutional media. But but I think it's great to embrace all of this storytelling and, you know, to also just teach people how to do it better, too, if they want to, like, you know, (laughs) actually talk about, like, very serious issues in the communities and in the world. But I think overall, just the fact that more stories are being told gives us a better perspective on our world and what's happening with people. Oh, yeah. I know some of my favorite podcasts, you know, deal with like a different range of topics. Like I love the, I think it's called 99% Design Podcast. Mm-hmm. that just talks about random design issues. Like I really love the one where they, I think they talked about New York's Penn Station and how it was built. Because I know that one's coming up, I think, for a redesign. And and I really love Jenna Wortham's and Wesley's podcast. Oh, Still Processing. Oh. Yeah, their podcast is just so much fun. I just love their personalities. Now, when you were working at the Times, you also did, you know, to talk about storytelling, you also did some writing there. You had some pieces that were in the Times. And one of them, you interviewed three Black creatives. You interviewed Fahamu Peku, who is a big artist here, well-known in Atlanta. Uh, You interviewed Jordan Castile. And you interviewed Emery Douglas, who has also been here on Revision Path. What did you learn from talking with them? I just learned so much. Like, I was just so grateful to just be able to have a time with them to just talk and, like, talk about art. You know, it's just really great to just hear their perspectives. And I know Emery Douglas is someone that I've just always admired. Like, I admired his work growing up. Posters were the first things that were just, like, that really just grabbed my attention and made me interested in design and art overall. So I just felt like it was just such an honor to be able to talk to him 50 years after his influential work with the Black Panthers and, you know, to hear him talk about what's been going on in our communities today and, and how he relates artistically to the work that a lot of our people of our generation is doing. And I would say Fahamu was you know, just very wise and just very 
inspiring to talk to and to hear him also talk about Emory Douglas work and to hear Jordan talk about Emory's work and how it has influenced them. And it just really is important to me about like knowing the black creatives that like came before us and like being able to look at their work as, as part of inspiration, you know, when we're like looking for things to do to create that we're always looking back, you know, at our, or at our guys, at our pioneers as well. Yeah, when I started Revision Path, I mean, that was really one of the big things I wanted to have as a takeaway is that I wanted to have this archive. Who are the people in the industry that are doing things right now? Because I, I think a lot exactly. of a lot of what design media reflects back to us doesn't include us. You know, I mean, it doesn't. You may and see one or two, but yeah. So I went to Hampton University and I was an advertising major, but I had a graphic design minor. So I was in the art department and, you know, the art department was great as creative, definitely needed some improvements, but it was, <laughs> it was a creative place. And there was like, you know, just really talented people who were a part of the school. I mean, like some of the people I still look at their work today, like on Instagram and I'm just always like still blown away. I'll never forget that I got to the New York times as an intern and one of the creative directors of the magazine was a guy named Aram Duplices. And he oh, went yeah. to Hampton. He went to Hampton. And I didn't know that. <laughs> and I was just like so shocked and just so, but it was, was, was so inspired by the fact that he was sitting there and he was sitting at the table and he was the creative director of the magazine, which is one of the best design publications to me. And now he works at Apple and, and, you know, just that we're able to continue to follow those people. And, and like you said, Maurice, like that you were, that that was an important part of why you started Revision Path. Like I can definitely understand why. Yeah. We've had quite a few people on the show that, that have went to Hampton. We've had, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I know we've had Nikita Pope who she's here in Atlanta. She does work mm -hmm. with AIGA. We've had Douglas Davis, who's in New York. He does a lot of work around business and strategy and design. Yes. Joel Simmons, who is a presentation designer. So he will create the kind of presentations you'll see at like Facebook's F8 developers conference or something like that. He is responsible for putting those kinds of things together. And Hampton has a really interesting, I was talking about this with Douglas. It has like this really interesting pipeline from there to New York in terms of design. Yes. Is that something yeah. that's like built into the department there in terms of like legacy or, or how does that work? It's really interesting because I don't think it's a formal program or whatnot. I mean, Hampton does have like, I will say Hampton did have a very strong relationship with the New York Times. Mm -hmm. New York Times had an institute program that they actually came to Hampton to recruit regularly for. And because of Scripps Howard built the journalism school there, there is a very, very tight bond with that media corporation. So there's a lot of internships there. But in terms of the design pipeline, I think what I've been noticing that's happening is that a lot of students just have this like alumni connection with places like Pratt yeah. and Parsons. Yeah. One of my friends who was in my graphic design program, he's a really great fashion illustrator. And he ended up going to Parsons and studying for fashion design. 
in New York. So yeah, it's definitely, I think, a creative place, even though it doesn't seem like that on the offset. Like I, I did not expect that when I necessarily went to Hampton, but it was great to to have it there. And then to see so many people in the field working and doing great things. Like I would say, another guy is, a, I think, I can't remember where he works now, but he's a creative director, Marcus, I think who you were talking about before. Just like his story and everything, like uh, going from school and then grad school and then to New York. So I feel like they should really they should play that up. Hampton should play up that that pipeline. They really should. <laughs> That's what I keep encouraging every time I go back. I was uh, going back to Hampton like usually about once a year to try to recruit for the Times, mm-hmm. which was really great. It was actually nice because the dean of the journalism school was Brett Pulley who's a Bloomberg reporter for several years. And he was really great about encouraging tech into journalism as well. Yeah. Because that's been another big advocacy of mine is that there needs to be a greater relationships between journalism and art schools mm-hmm. and tech departments. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I went to Morehouse and I know that they have a really good relationship more so with like business. Like they have a, a great relationship with Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. But I think along the tech side, I want to say they have a relationship with Microsoft. I know that there are alumni that come back that do recruit from the school, which I think is is what's needed. You know, and there's all this talk about the pipeline. I feel like the pipeline always leaves HBCUs out. And so HBCUs yeah. kind of have to, I mean, they have to sort of build their own pipeline. But those are selling points that I think need to be really told, especially to parents that want to know where they're going to send their kids. You know, of course, they exactly. want to send them to HBCUs for, you know, the culture, for some, for the legacy. And it feels like, and, and I could just be talking, you know, crazy here, but I, it feels like sometimes the career prospect is almost like not the main reason that some people might go to an HBCU. I think that's fair in some aspects to say, but I think it's like you said, the narratives that we hype up. Yeah. Like the other day I was looking at the article because I have several friends who went to Dillard that Diller produces, I think, the most PhD black women in the sciences. Uh-huh. And so I just feel like we need to really hype up just a different narrative of like what it means to have that experience. And I know for me, I usually emphasize to people that originally I wasn't looking to go to an HBCU. It kind of just like happened that I got accepted to Hampton and and that I thought it was the best choice for me to go to. But what I felt like I took away was that I actually felt like more confident and more able to like communicate and understand what I wanted to do coming out of school. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of soft things that HBCUs provide to students, but I think we also should, like you said, hype up those hard things that like we're producing graduates that like go on to do these like really great and amazing things or go on to like grad school or these other Olympic feats. Yeah. Even talking about like the sporting part of HBCUs. Yeah. I I really agree with that. Like play up those other narratives. And I feel like when that happens, there will be other opportunities that may come from other companies that want to partner with that school because they see, Oh, well they sort of have this structure already in place. One thing that I know from doing the show, I mean, aside from doing the show, I've done work with, AIGA with their diversity and inclusion task force. Um, I did that for like the past three years. And one thing we were trying to do is really reach out to HBCUs to kind of get, 
you know, student groups going and try to see kind of what's going on in HBCUs with design. And what I tell you, we largely got stonewalled <laughs> in terms of, oh, no. of trying to get any really? kind of, yeah, like, but yeah, we started to get stonewalled. We couldn't really get any sort of response back from anyone. I just got a response back from someone from Howard. And I talked to them like three years ago. I sent them emails about, hey, we should talk about ways that we can work together. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not on the task force anymore. But let me introduce (laughs) you to someone that you can talk to. And I I know it was like this for me when I went to Morehouse, where when you have these sort of outside interests trying to come in, there can be this reticence to even want to talk sometimes. It's like, oh, well, what, what do you want, you know? And I think yeah. that can come from a legacy of maybe being burned by past experiences or things like that. But a lot of companies, I mean, I, I can tell you a lot of companies are certainly looking at HBCUs with a very critical eye because they look at what the pipeline is in terms of design. They look at the pipeline for tech and they're yeah. realizing that they can't look in the same places they were looking before if they're trying to achieve certain diversity goals. They really can't. Yeah. And And it it doesn't behoove them to. Like one of the really cool things that happened when I got that internship at the Times, I wasn't the only person from Hampton. There were actually two other Hampton students who got internships that same summer, which was, I think, a record for Hampton and was something that usually was only achieved by Columbia graduates. Yeah. And I do think that. HBCUs provide something of note for these pipelines that they're continuously saying that they cannot find, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though you know that they're there. But yeah, you're just like so right of like spotlighting that out. But yeah, the companies are definitely looking. I know they're coming to me and I feel like if they're coming to me and I just run a podcast, surely they have to be going to more important (laughs) people to say, well, what can we do to, to get the, you know, get a foot in the door in Hampton or what can we do to get a foot in the door at, at Howard or at Morehouse or at Spellman or something like that. So it's interesting. I think HBCUs are aware of what they have. Certainly they know their value, which is great, but yeah, there's, there's gotta be some, something yeah, has to happen there to open that up. And I think about what our role is in that, you know, I think about that a lot. Like, you know, I've thought about like, is our role in helping this by like being those liaisons at those companies? I definitely felt like when I was at the Times, I really pushed for us to go visit Hampton mm-hmm. as a part of our schools list on both sides of the business, like on the STEM side, on the business side, as well as the newsroom side. I definitely was always raising my hand to like go down to any HBCU trips. Like I think one of my last ones there was at Spelman and Morehouse. But I do wonder if there's like different things that we could be providing. Like, I don't know if there are like more sponsored workshops to make sure that they're keeping, you know, up with things that are also happening in the industries that we're currently working in. Yeah. I was definitely very encouraged to see the Google partnership with Howard and curious to see like, you know, the evolution of that or what that will mean. Oh, yeah. Howard West, I think is what they're calling it. Something like that. Yes. I'm really interested to see what that's going to be, too, because I've heard. (laughs) How do I want to put this? I've heard from alumni that they are very skeptical. They are like super skeptical about about how it's going to turn out. But I mean, the optics of it certainly are are fantastic. You've got Howard students. They're going to be on Google's campus learning, you know, getting the best 
access to technology and to networking and things. I mean, in a way, it could only be a win. But of course, it is predicated on the relationship that Google has with Howard. And I think a lot of us are going to be watching that relationship. And I think that relationship will also determine the other partnerships that we see going forward. Yeah. I know Apple, I think, partnered with Jackson State for a while. They were they were a uh, an Apple distinguished school. And I, I know yeah. that they're I mean, I've I don't want to name any names of companies, but I've certainly had big tech companies reach out just to me. I keep saying, I mean, it's just I just do this show, you know, like they're reaching out to me <laughs> and they're like, can we try to find a way that we can do something together at HBCU? I'm like, really? You're talking to me about that? Like, go talk to the school. Like, make, well, th- make that happen. You know, when I started noticing, I think these companies really need help. So, like, one of the things that I was fortunate of being able to do while I was at the Times was meeting the two guys who founded Jopwell. Oh, yeah. Porter and Ryan. Yes. And, like, you know, their story is just, like, really interesting. Of course, it includes a little bit of Goldman Sachs. <laughs> but, um but they're just like really two smart guys who are just like, you know, really like partnering with these companies doing that. And like, so I've really been wondering about this question of like, do they just, I think the companies are really having a hard time with how to best either attract the talent, how to best reach out yeah. to the talent and also wanting to make sure that like any of their concerns are also being like addressed or heard. And so I think they're looking to people like you and Jopwell to help them like solve some of those problems. But, but it is interesting. Like, I, I feel like that's one way to look at it. And then it's also how can those companies internally just be better at, at diversity and inclusion yeah. and making sure they have people in those positions of hiring so that they can hire those for those positions. Mm-hmm. Certainly that inclusion angle is really important. I know that there are companies that do great diversity outreach, like when they have job postings, they know exactly where to go to get the applicants that they need, et cetera. But somewhere in that like black box of interviewing, all those diversity candidates magically just fall away. Or if someone does manage to make it through that gauntlet and they get hired, they're gone in six months for some reason or another. And they probably you know, wrote something on Medium about it or something. I don't know. But it's like once you get them in there, what do you do to keep them? Like, what is it that you want to change in your workplace culture? What is it that, you know, it's not just enough to kind of make this field of dream situation. You have to also make it welcoming for these people that clearly are outside of the regular pipeline that you might hire. What is it about your workplace culture that is making people either want to stay or want to go? And I think you just hit on a really important topic is what makes people want to stay. Like you asked me too before about leaving the times and I like really love the times as an institution, as a place. And, but one of the things that I did feel like they struggled with was how do they keep people there? The reason to be there is a little different than what it was before. Of course, the mission is stronger now more than ever, but in terms of like your job and and advancement and people being around you who are different from you and also people who are like you Mm -hmm. being there, you know, become very, very important. And I know one of the things that I was sort of trying to do towards the end of the times was we always felt like we were journalists first. Like Mm. when you work in media, you cover things from like deaths, you look at things like obits, you look at them in a different way than as a normal reader. 
And when all these events started happening with the deaths of like Eric Gardner and Philando Castile and just all of these like really sad moments, I really started feeling like we weren't addressing how we felt as employees. So I really got inspired because it was around the time of like Solange's album of like, you know, things that are for us. And I decided to organize a safe space at the New York Times and just got some food, played a couple of like slow jazz records and some Solange (laughs) (laughs) and just asked people, you know, to come up and like to just talk, to talk about how they feel about these things that are happening. And I think, like you said, like, what do we do as companies to address the things that make us individuals or the things that we may be dealing with? I had felt like before then we never really had anything to like acknowledge that these things were happening. Of course, we were covering it. And of course, people had opinions about it and were very vocal about it and wanted to make sure we covered these things in a graceful, elegant way. But we never like paused and, and just really thought about how does this affect me as a person mm-hmm. on top of being like a journalist? Yeah, you were literally giving them a seat at the table. <laughs> I was trying. I was trying. Yeah, it was very interesting. And I know you also had Amelie on your show. And so like, yeah, that was yeah, she's great. One of the times I was able to bond with her was during that safe space. Nice. So you mentioned that you're learning a lot of stuff now at Slack. What are some of the new things that you're if, I mean, that you can talk about, I guess, you know, at Liberty. What are some of the yeah. new things that you're learning now in this new environment? So I will say, like, now I'm in a Uh, environment that's focused on a product that's like very much like a a product in a different sense like I always I guess thought journalism is information being a product but now there's like you know sort of a tangible product (laughs) of software and I think one of the biggest things I'm learning is what a startup is (laughs) Mm -hmm. just like taking it way way granular I think I had one thought in my mind And now I see like exactly what a startup is. Like I said, I've worked at more things that are institutions, places that had process and procedure down to like a science almost. And so being in a place where you're starting to create process is interesting. I think it it flexes a different muscle, a different design muscle. So I definitely spent a lot of time of trying to think about that on the digital side of branding, like How do we work with developers? How do we share assets? How do we communicate ideas? What are very clear ways we can communicate our visual language? And it's been really good. I think maybe this point in my career, after like really designing at a rigorous pace, it's nice to think about how is it best to work as a designer? What skills do I need to make it easy or what tools do I need to make it easier for developers to understand what I'm trying to accomplish? And of course, working with Mina has been really great for that because of her experience on Hillary's campaign site and the design system she was able to build there. Yeah, it was called a pantsuit, I think. Is that it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> pantsuit. <laughs> what are you excited about at the moment? I'm really excited about... Artificial intelligence at this moment. I'm excited to get to a point where I could probably take a picture of someone's really cool shoes and like be able to know exactly where they got them from. (laughs) 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 Which, you know, I'm also like a fashion lover. So um, I, I keep thinking about that. Like, you know, just all these like cool things that I could be able to do. 
and just also just excited about how it can improve some of the things that we're doing or even give us time to focus on other things in our lives by freeing us up from having to do certain types of tasks. Yeah, I feel like we're starting to get that a little bit with these home automation devices. I say this as I'm looking at my Google Home, but like we have these (laughs) devices that we can talk to and speak to and tell them different tasks that they can carry out. Some of them are simple, like, you know, play this song or if you have home automation, turn off the lights. Some of it is order, you know, order me a pizza or call an Uber, you know, things that are small, but they're sort of like these generated tasks that through AI are becoming, you know, more and more possible. Yeah. And I think about how, you know, how in little ways it touches me, like one at work with the Slack bot and how like it can see which channels I haven't been very active in and and start to like collapse them or ask me about getting rid of them. And you know how that sort of frees me up. Okay. I'd have to worry about managing that one again or like you said, having like Alexa or these other home devices or the fridge devices, like just all of these little things that kind of like are going to connect to mean like a larger and, and a more different world that we'll be living in with different worries. So it, it's just really fascinating to me. And I've been watching a lot of Black Mirror. So that's probably <laughs> adding to it. But yeah, but I think it's very exciting, though, at the same time, too. So and I'm curious to see how we can utilize it more in like branding and comms design. Like Hmm. I'm always thinking about whatever digital projects I'm working on of like how we can use AI more to like maybe tailor certain experiences or tailor onboarding or tailor how a person wants to use it, use a certain product. And maybe that'll be the first interaction that they get with your brand is your brand's AI or something. So, yeah, I was just trying to think about also how it can be used in different areas. Yeah, I think we're starting to see that with chat bots, like with Facebook Messenger, you can set one up. Like if you do a uh, if you get a Facebook page, you have the option to kind of create your own little messenger bot of sorts. So if people ask questions, you can respond back to them. I guess they have to be specific things. I could see it working well for like a restaurant or something when you're like, what are your operating hours or something like that? Yeah. And also think about the personality that it would have, like, and what that would say about your brand and like, you know, just how fine tuning that and like, what are the intricacies of that? Like how much information would you have to feed the AI and like what type of information to get the like kind of personality that you would like? What is it like being in the epicenter of all of this in the Bay Area? I mean, moving from New York to there, you're in the thick of all this innovation. What is it like? It is very, sometimes it's overwhelming, but at the other times, it is very, very just awe-inspiring. I will say that definitely moving from New York to the Bay Area is a completely different shift It's definitely, like you said, the epicenter. It is the focus out here. Almost everyone I meet is in some way is connected to technology. But what's really amazing about that is everyone's really doing something interesting. And not only are they doing something interesting in their jobs, like their nine to fives, they're also doing something interesting in their spare time. And I think that working in tech tends to like encourage that and maybe allow a little bit more space for that. But I've been really like excited to like be introduced to different people that like may have been a little bit 
different or a little bit more difficult in New York. So like, for example, some days I just take like little trips to other people's offices just to see what it's like and meet their designers. I went down to Walker. I think it's Walker and Co. Oh, um, yeah. Tristan Walker. With Tristan. And, yeah. Yeah. And I was able to meet with Quentin, their designer. And it was just really cool to see their space. And it was just like so nice. I had all these album covers of like Prince and all these old school artists up on the wall. And, you know, just talking with Quentin about like, their thoughts on design and like what they're working on and like what they're excited about, like was just really nice. And so I feel like it's been really great to connect with other designers. I feel like that's another big change. Like there are so many designers and black creatives out here. Hmm. I have several friends who work as product designers at Facebook and kind of like hearing some of their challenges that they're going through or people who work at like other smaller startups. It's just really like, a great place to be really creative and people are very encouraging of your ideas. Like if you have something that you want to work on something that's like maybe a passion project, people are really interested in helping you and getting involved. I really got to find a way to get back out to the Bay. <laughs> I was, I was there last year. I, I, um, I did some interviews with Facebook who's a sponsor. And so I wasn't out there maybe for like two or three days and it was all just, it was all work the whole time I was there, but I know that there's a Bay Area Black Designers Meetup group that Cat mm-hmm. Vales puts on, who she's been on the show before. And I've interviewed a bunch of other people out there. I don't say a bunch, maybe about five or six, but it's good to hear that there's a strong Black creative community in the Bay because you hear so much out of that, you know, out of the Bay, out of Silicon Valley around tech. And I guess, you know, tech and design tend to get conflated and I could see certainly how that would be the case in Silicon Valley, but it's good to hear that there's that strong community out there. Yeah. And I would also say one of the the really great things too about Slack that I was really impressed about was their commitment to diversity. And I mean, I'm excited whenever me and Christy and the engineering lead for marketing Arquay are together in a room discussing some part of a web project, you know, those are experiences that I didn't necessarily have a lot of. And so it is very fascinating that I was able to have it out here. But, but that does go to say that there are things that could be improved. Like it would be great to have more like artists out here. I'm very happy to see about the Afrotech conference coming up that Blavity is. Oh yeah. um, yeah. So I think that will be like a pretty cool initiative and like, I think it'll draw a lot of people out and also make the Bay Area seem like a place for also black tech, because I've been noticing a lot of conversations are being had around Atlanta and Atlanta's growing tech scene. And so I'm I'm curious from your perspective of how you see that. Yeah, Atlanta's tech scene is it's interesting because, I mean, I've sort of came out of the tech scene into the design scene in a way. So. My background is in math and science. My undergrads in math. My master's degree is telecommunications management. And so I started off in 2005, 2005, doing a lot of like front end coding. I did some back end stuff, some PHP, that sort of thing. I worked at AT&T, was a senior designer there for a few years and then quit and started my own design studio. And so I was sort of transitioning out of tech into design, but it was also at the same time when 
technology was really getting a big boost down here. We have, I think, two or three incubators, the ATDC, which is at Georgia Tech's campus. We've got the Atlanta Tech Village, where there's there's millions of dollars going in and out of those doors every day. We've got a lot of co-working spaces, which have cropped up within the past 10 years. We've got a lot of like strong meetups, of course, because we have a big tech school like Georgia Tech. We sort of have that infusion of just the brain trust here. But then also Atlanta has the most HBCUs out of any city in the country. And so that brings a totally different element in terms of the diversity angle of all the whole like tech and design kind of community. It's really interesting. I, I see some overlap, but not a whole lot. I mean, certainly the startup scene is big and huge and popping. I mean, it's it's certainly, I think, bigger than the design scene here. But the design scene here also is kind of conflated with the the art scene here. So we have big arts museums like the High, the Carlos. We've got a design museum here. We have a like really strong underground black art scene as well. I live in a super arty neighborhood in the West End, which is also a historically black neighborhood. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff going on that makes Atlanta a really interesting place to be creatively. And of course, it's, you know, the cost of living can't beat it. But then, you know, yes, you got the heat. You beat the cost of living. <laughs> but, then, but then you got the heat and the traffic. So it's like a trade off. But, <laughs> but it's, it's good. Atlanta is a, is a really interesting place. I've lived here since 99, but I feel like now I'm just starting to kind of tap into that. Cause, you know, for a long time, I was just working at places and, you know, you get, you end up being the role of the employee. You go to work, you come home, you go to work, you come home. That's it. And you don't really get a chance to see or experience the rest of the community kind of outside of that. And it wasn't until I started my studio and, you know, really started getting out there, especially with this podcast that I started to really see like just how much is going on here every single day. I still feel like it could be a lot stronger. I mean, I hate to say it's the South. I'm from the South. I'm from Alabama. But I mean, there is a a certain uh, (laughs) laxness of things that happen out here where there's not a lot of it it can seem like there's not a lot of momentum when you compare it to like a New York or San Francisco. But there's a lot of stuff that's that's going on down here. I mean, music and media tend to get most of that shine because we have a lot of movies, a lot of TV stuff here, of course, have big rap scene, big country scene, et cetera. But there's a lot going on in Atlanta. It's a it's a weird, strange, interesting mix. And I feel like for any creative, it's a good city to to be in and be inspired. And actually, yeah, let's uh, talk about that a little bit, because so I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee. Okay, and I'm definitely keeping a like strong eye on like what is happening creatively in Memphis. Like I just try to check in and see stuff because I've been noticing like I think there's like a little a brand studio by these two black creatives. And I've been noticing they've been doing a lot more work. Um, like there's this hand letterer who's been redoing a lot of the signs in Memphis. And so I know I've been like curious about what it would be like potentially to like, you know, take all this information and knowledge that I'm gaining. And like, even if I eventually went back home one day or went back to the South and like, how has the South been moving in terms of that? And and like you said, I definitely think it's a little bit of a different pace. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a different rhythm. And, you know, what motivates, I think, Southerners is a little bit different. But, 
Yeah, I've been really trying to like keep like a little hand or at least an eye on what's happening. Like I even joined this new newsletter called Bitter Southerner. The Bitter oh, Southerner. Oh, the Bitter Southerner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm like super curious of like, yeah, like how will tech change the South? So Yeah. And I mean Atlanta also has a really big biotech scene because we've got Grady Memorial Hospital, which is a level one trauma center. Piedmont Hospital is a level one trauma center. We have Children's Hospital. We have Scottish Rite. We've got Emory Crawford Long. We have Emory University. So there's a lot of of big hospitals and medical facilities here. And some of them. Yeah, and isn't the, the CDC there too? And the CDC is here. That's right. Actually, it's <laughs> it's interesting. The pipeline. When we talk about pipelines, there's like a Art Institute of Atlanta AT and T CDC pipeline. Oh, where wow. People yeah. that graduate from there will they end up at AT. When I started at AT&T, I think I was the only person there from an HBCU and certainly the only person that didn't go to Art Institute of Atlanta. Everyone else there was a graduate <laughs> or was a friend of someone else. And I was like, how did I get in here? This is, this is wild. Hey. But then so hey. many of them have now now they work for the CDC. Yeah. It's wow. I didn't realize kind of, there was that pipeline. Of yeah. That combination. Yeah. So what advice would you give for somebody that kind of wants to follow in your footsteps and do what you've done or or what would you tell them? Well, the biggest thing that I think has really helped me was definitely being flexible about opportunities and what interests me. I think like I always knew I wanted to like go to college and study something creative. My family is pretty creative. My sister draws my mom used to draw when I was little, but they never really pursued it as as like a job. And I guess I was trying to think of like, how can I actually pursue creativity in my work every day? And so I kind of found this like niche for me originally, which was like editorial design. And hmm. while I was at Hampton, I design I would design the feature pages for the Hampton script. Even after college, I always kind of like kept in touch with the designers at the Hampton script and would try to help out with anything that I could. But but I kind of feel like though that opportunity came up just while I was studying graphic design and someone was like, hey, like do you want to try designing for the school paper? And I was like, sure. And then I did and <laughs> and it kind of seemed to be like, oh, I, I think I'm good at this and I actually really like it. And then just kept doing print and then was opening to the changes that I was seeing around me and open to learning more. So I'm just really about being like flexible and curious. I think we're in a part of society where the job you may want to do may not exist or it may not be created yet. And I think for me, that's, it's really encouraging. I mean, that means that like, it's okay to not have it all figured out and all written down. It means that there will be a little bit of serendipity or a little bit of of like discovery that's going to mm-hmm. happen. And I think that that is like the best that we can ask for is like as people and as those in, in pursuit of like, you know, a fulfilling career is that we discover things about ourselves and about the work that we do that like encourages us or propels us forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are people that are getting jobs now just off Twitter. Yes, I was just looking at an article about that, about um, how our Instagram jobs or this Instagram recruiting technique, how that is working. And I would say definitely I've been encouraging a lot of people about LinkedIn 
LinkedIn to me is like really fascinating of it as a social platform, but I find that the conversations on there are really good and thought provoking and that people are really looking to connect people for jobs. Maybe I need to be a part of that because my LinkedIn is like Facebook. <laughs> there are people like sharing memes and talking about, I mean, it's, it's a mix. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are people that are putting out thought provoking material, but nine times out of 10, I look at my LinkedIn timeline. I'm just like, yeah, I, I, could, I could hit or miss. Yeah, we got to look at your timeline. (laughs) (laughs) What do you want to accomplish for the rest of this year? Hmm, One of the things I've been really wanting to accomplish this year, you're helping me with, Maurice, little that you knew, (laughs) is to actually talk a little bit more about my experience and hopefully to encourage other people that they can really do what they put their minds to and that there's a lot of different things that you can do in design. Like one of the questions I get asked a lot is, do I like illustrate? And I like to draw like on my own, like I'll go to art classes and things like that, but I don't really like doing illustration in my day-to-day job. Like I love working with illustrators and commissioning artwork, but I tend to like not do as much like hand illustration and I think when you're younger, when you're in school, of course, they're trying to teach you everything. But I think as you develop, you see where you gravitate or you see where your strengths are. Yeah. And I just am really trying to focus on building up my strengths for the end of this year. And one of them, I think, is being able to communicate and help other people relate to design. And so I really want to do more speaking about design and digital design and about transitioning and that even though you may have been doing something for years and years and years, and it seems scary to change, that you can change and you can do it. And that learning new things is scary. But when you stop learning, that's when you really should be afraid. Yeah, I agree with that. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What do you want to be working on? In the next five years, I really want to be working on what I would love to be working on is some projects for things that haven't even been created yet. One, I was looking at a couple of articles between the whole Elon Musk and like Mark Zuckerberg AI debate. And I just thought, like, how fascinating would it be to design something that doesn't exist yet? And like what leaps strategically and visually what I have to think about in order to think about something that hasn't been created yet. That's an interesting concept. I mean, I think that's what a lot of, that's kind of a lot of what we do as designers though, right? We try to take in, you know, maybe some abstract information and then turn it into something hopefully tangible or at least visual for people to interact with. Exactly. And I think I see a lot of that in these new products that are being made. And I think it's just really it gives me this just really this really big creative push. And it just really makes me think about my imagination and being more imaginative and having more time for, you know, thoughts of fancy and wonderment in my life. So I think that that's like kind of what I'm looking for in the next five years to be like just in the state of wonder of possibilities and to be comfortable with not knowing all of the aspects that are at play, like you said, is what we do in design, but still being able to create from it. 
Well, Angelica, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? I would say probably you can find me on Twitter at Angelica Designs. You can also check out my work on LinkedIn, or you can check me out on my website, which is AngelicaMcKinley.com. All right. Sounds good. Well, Angelica McKinley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your story about how you kind of made this switch. I really like what you said here at the end about how it's never too late to learn. It's never too late for you to kind of switch things over in terms of your career. I, I see this meme sometimes that goes around. Sometimes it's on Tumblr. Sometimes it's on on Twitter about where it's like, Oprah was 23 when she did this and Bill Gates was this age and Tony Morrison was this age. It's not too late for yeah. you. Uh, and I mean, I think that's really the case because a lot of what is happening in our world is really tumultuous and unstable right now. But I think that what is, is a, I guess a benefit of that is it spurs people into action and exactly. And like, certainly say what now? Like, I said, I've seen it like, you know, with my own eyes, like when I was working um, for Gannett, which owns USA Today, we had huge layoffs. I was in Mississippi working at the um, Clarion Ledger and massive layoffs. Like our managing editor was laid off. But what I saw was also resilient people. Like when our head of photography got laid off, he ended up remaking himself as like a sports photographer and started covering the teams, the football teams down in Mississippi. And then another one of the female photographers was laid off and she ended up starting her own like photography studio in Mississippi. And I think what we sometimes forget is how resilient we are. Yeah. And not only that, you know, how much innovation can sometimes come out of a desperate situation, you know, just like when when you talked about how it's important for black creatives to kind of create during times of unrest like this. When you look at work that like, would we have known about the work Emory Douglas was doing if it didn't happen during that sort of time? Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, would it, we have known about it? Would it have reached as many people? Would have had the same influence? And and that's why I think that we have to keep pushing ourselves to learn. And I think, too, it's it's not just for the careers. It's also for ourselves, it's keeping us like our brains like elastic and thinking about new ideas. And I think it also helps us socially. And when it comes to like social issues, I think if we are used to tackling different types of problems and used to thinking in different ways and having to be flexible in our thinking, it also affects us as like human beings and how we interact with each other. Absolutely. Well, yeah, again, Angelica, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. No problem, Maurice. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks for Vision Path. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Angelica McKinley and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Angelica and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. Their mission is to make the world more open and connected, and they use design to create prototypes, shape experiences, and ultimately solve problems as well. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. 
Whether you need to sell your products, share some big news, or just tell a story, MailChimp makes it easy to create campaigns that best suit your message. Automate your marketing efforts, put your data to work, and see how you're doing. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. They offer free private domain registration, you can get your choice from hundreds of domain extensions, and you can connect those domains to your favorite web service. Ready to get started? Just go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Mandre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps the show out by bumping us up in the rankings there for Design Podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.